You're listening to a classic business podcast as heard on Classic 1027. 1027. The sustainability feature on Classic Business is brought to you by EnviroMall, experts in sourcing new and hard-to-find eco-friendly products for sustainable tomorrows. Speaking to ESCOM CEO Andre Dereta this week on the show, it seems the penny has finally dropped inside ESCOM's highest leadership that the best and fastest and indeed cheapest way out of the country's power crisis is to allow independent power producers to be the leading part of that solution. It uh, is unclear, though, whether the CEO uh, favours uh, gas uh, and other fossil fuel IPPs or renewable IPPs. Ultimately, the political will rests outside of ESCOM, though. And to talk about the situation, I'm joined now by uh, Mark Swilling, Distinguished Professor of Sustainable Development in the School of Public Leadership at the University of Stellenbosch, where he's also uh, the co-director of the Stellenbosch Centre for Complex Systems in Transition, and now also Deputy Chair of uh, the Infrastructure Delivery and Knowledge Committee of the board of the DBSA. Mark, welcome to the show. Always a pleasure. Uh, the one thing that you can get a, a room full of NEDLAC attendees to agree on is that if load shedding persists, economic plans and recoveries are really pipe dreams. What are the urgent steps that must be taken to bring the cheapest and most reliable energy onto the grid? The absolute quickest way of getting, of relieving pressure on the grid would be to lift restrictions on businesses and households who want to install their own renewable energy infrastructure. So at the moment, you're allowed to install up to one megawatt. and But if you want to install more than that, you need a license. And to get a license out of NERSA is a bit like squeezing blood out of a stone. So if you lifted that cap from one megawatt to 10 megawatts, let's say, then a whole bunch of mines, big industries, shopping malls, etc., would install big systems and that would uh, relieve, uh, that could would create an additional capacity of five gigawatts quite quickly and thus relieve that amount of pressure on the grid. That's one of the quickest ways. The other is to allow renewable energy, wind farms and solar farms to, to put onto the grid what they can, which is more than what they're licensed to provide. And then the third quick win is to get the shovel-ready renewable energy projects uh, that the private sector say they can deliver to get that onto the grid as quickly as possible. But there's a fourth, which is to allow ESCOM to start uh, getting into renewables, in particular by repurposing the coal-fired power stations that it is intending to close. And thus also providing uh, a sustainable future for ESCOM at a time when uh, there are still huge question marks over its balance sheet. I don't want to talk about the balance sheet issue now. I want to park that for one moment. If you look at the reprogram, and uh, so far uh, we've seen some positive moves. It's already raised 210-odd billion in the previous bid windows, 112 IPPs, and uh, yeah. that's a procurement of just under 6,500 megawatts, uh, which is a little bit less than what is now going to be procured through uh, the bid window five. There is some debate, though, as to whether ESCOM should continue to play the single buyer role in light of uh, ESCOM's uh, perilous financial position. Yes. So, I mean, just to, just so that your listeners understand this technical language, if you build a, a wind farm now and you want to uh, sell your electricity, you have to obviously connect to the grid, but who's going to buy it? In terms of the current rules of the game, only ESCOM can buy it. If ESCOM decides they don't want to buy it, you can't sell it. 
But there is another way of thinking about it, which is if you put, you could sell your energy, say, to the city of Cape Town, who pay you, but then what you're doing is you're wheeling your electrons across the ESCOM grid, and ESCOM will probably charge you a fee for that. So if you had more and more buyers, not just ESCOM, you know, who are not technically bankrupt, um, that would create a whole new uh, market. And that's uh, what many people are pushing for. There's also another issue within that, uh, and that is this uh, unbundling of ESCOM or separation into three uh, separate entities with their own boards. And uh, uh, the CEO, Dorator, says that that is moving along quite swiftly. Uh, and one of those uh, would be uh, the ITSMO, the, um, the system operator, which would then yeah. be separate from ESCOM. And so... If that is the buyer, then at least that gets rid of some conflicts of interest. That's, that's correct. It won't be initially. It won't be separate from Eskom Holdings. So uh, Eskom Holdings will probably own it uh, together with the other entities that uh, Eskom Holdings own. But it would have its own board. So it would be ring fenced and uh, you know isolated from the the other parts of Eskom. So and and if that entities set up structure uh, properly with a with a proper balance sheet and a, and a healthy mix of, of debt uh, and investment, that could be the buyer and that would solve the problem. But that entity could also procure. So that entity could also have its own internal procurement office uh, and uh, could run a procurement process in parallel to the current procurement system, which is known as the REAP. And that REAP uh, program is held up as one of the model public-private partnerships. Whenever we talk infrastructure, um, that REAP model is touted both by the private uh, sector and government, the public sector, as a model that we need to be pursuing in this uh, broader grand infrastructure program. But I don't want to get uh, sidetracked from the energy issue. We look at the, the price of energy right now, uh, Mark, and uh, there's a big question mark around what happens because ESCOM's won these recent court victories against NERSA? It looks like it's going to push the cost of uh, electricity up to what ESCOM has always been saying is a, a cost-reflective tariff. The argument has often been that that is reflective of inefficiencies and uh, potentially backward-looking corruption in terms of the procurement of things like coal and its primary inputs. Why now are renewables so much more important against that backdrop? Basically, what has happened over many, many years is that ESCOM has not been allowed to increase prices of electricity commensurate with the costs of, uh, in particular, the capital that it needs to borrow in order to provide the electricity. And, and that has resulted in the fact that uh, there's a buildup of debt with, within ESCOM. Now that ESCOM is winning the battle through, uh, through all these court cases to, to have the right to now charge more cost-reflective tariffs, that is going to push the tariffs up, and we're all going to start paying more and more for electricity. In order to mitigate that, you must bring onto the grid the cheapest possible electricity. So if you build a coal-fired power station, uh, you, you're going to pay a lot more per kilowatt hour for that electricity than the electricity that would be generated from renewable energy plants. Uh, um, so, yes, there's an upward pressure uh, that ESCOM wants to cover its costs, 
Uh, but to mitigate that, uh, if there's more and more renewables on the grid, uh, that will generate that that will make it possible to limit the impact of these cost increases. And at current prices, you're really seeing the costs of renewables uh, well below that of coal. Some argue, though, Mark, and I, I'm not the technical expert on this, that. You, if you're looking at renewables, have to obviously factor in the, the fact that it's not always dispatchable, the sun's not always shining, the wind's not always blowing, so you have to then factor in the cost of battery storage. Are, is the industry, as, as far as you're aware, taking this into account when it says that renewable is now cost-competitive with the likes of coal? Yes. I mean, the modelling that has been done by Meridian and CSIR uh, going forward, factors in storage, battery storage as well as gas peakers, uh, equal to about 30% of the total uh, installed capacity. So that is a very substantial uh, backup, and the costs of that are included in the in, in the estimates. So you're right, the sun doesn't always shine, the wind doesn't always blow, although the wind does tend to blow when the sun is not shining like at night. But you're going to have to have storage. And storage, the cost of storage has come down by 85% over the last five years. So increasingly around the world where they are installing renewable energy, large-scale storage is part of the mix. Like in India, there's a recent project which combines solar and wind plus plus battery storage, and they can supply 24-7. And that's that's, that's the future. And this comes at a time as well when we need a stimulus to get the economy going after the uh, COVID-induced economic depression that we find ourselves in. We were in recession before COVID struck. Uh, I think it's safe to say we are now firmly in uh, sort of a depression territory. We're going to contract, uh, if you look at the Saab's figures, by just over 7% this year. Uh, and, And so we're looking for catalysts to trigger growth. Uh, What is the potential in terms of job creation, in terms of the multiplier effects in this kind of renewable-led, low-cost infrastructure program? Well, um, Nick Stern, the former chief economist of the World Bank, led uh, a study, uh, a survey of 250 economists from all over the world uh, to investigate what they all thought were the the best kinds of post-COVID stimulus. Uh, mechanisms and the overwhel- there was overwhelming agreement that green economy investments were the best and, and renewables was at top of that top of that list and that's because renewables in particular have short and long term multipliers so you can invest in 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 building a lot of renewables now and they happen quickly they they create a lot of jobs t- roughly ten thousand jobs per what construct renewables if you end up to figure what that's 50,000 workers, and there are about 56,000 workers who work in coal mines that supply coal to ESCOM, just to put it in perspective. So there's actually short-term multipliers, but the long-term multiplier is also present. Namely, you are ensuring grid uh, security of supply and grid stability, which is what we need, not just in the short term, we need in the long term as we really, mm-hmm. really, really start for the, you know, for the first time ever really industrializing and growing our economy. And a renewables-led industrialization program could probably create the largest number of jobs we've ever seen since 1994 in a single program. 
And to bring ESCOM back into the equation here, obviously, we, we, when you talk about those cold jobs, the, the conversation turns to this uh, just transition, which is as much a technical debate as it is a political debate, because you're talking about jobs in the coal mining regions of uh, Mpumalanga in particular. Uh, and so uh, any of these projects would have to be located close to those jobs. It makes sense then to locate them on the grounds of those old coal-fired power stations. How, how much potential is there to do that? Well, there's a lot of uh, discussion about that. And ESCOM has issued an expression of interest uh, to gauge, uh, to generate ideas from the private sector on, on how to do that. Um, the, it, it, is, uh, it is an obvious thing to do because you have a license to generate energy from those particular uh, power stations. So if you could say, if you could just be allowed to use the same license but generate it from a different technology, uh, then you ha- you, you've hit a sweet spot. Uh, and, you know, you know, hopefully that's all the necessary decision makers are focusing their minds on that. So that could really... Um, and as you say, that could also be in the Pumalanga region, which would be most affected by the closures. The, the sun and the wind resources might not be as good as in the Northern Cape uh, uh, and, and other regions, uh, but what you might be losing on the resource, you're gaining on the fact that there's grid capacity there. You don't have to invest in new grid capacity to bring those renewables online. Mark, what you're talking about here is potentially game-changing for a country that so desperately requires a a small economic miracle right now and it makes a lot of sense Uh, you speak to a lot of uh, very well researched um, experts in their fields uh, professor uh, and dr tobias bishop nimsh javier stain of meridian economics uh, so many others in the the private sector alistair campbell of vantage greenex they fund these projects the, the big question and frustration i guess for onlookers is why are we not moving what is holding up this seemingly obvious uh, solution to the country's economic and energy crisis. Yeah, that is uh, that is uh, that is the big, big, big question. Um, basically, I think there's it's 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 a, it's a combination of, of of factors. The one of the most serious and obvious ones is the extremely complex bureaucratic processes to bring renewables on, on, online. You have to have an integrated resource plan, then the DMRE must publish a Section 34 determination, then MRSA, in, in its very slow way, has to basically um, confirm that and, and, and affirm it, uh, and then the IPP office in the DMRE has to issue a request for proposals. Those proposals then have to be assessed. And this is very, very bureaucratic, very, very time-consuming, much more bureaucratic than in most other countries. Uh, so that is that is the one reason uh, that's constraining. Uh, when it comes to re- lifting the the lid on the or lifting the restriction on self-generation, well, that is purely a case of uh, the DMRE making a decision to scrap that 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 constraint and just allowing the ESCOM system operator to make the decisions about who connects and who doesn't connect. Um, you know, that system is in place. There's a set of codes to govern that. You don't need a regulation to, con- to control that. So that's a DMRE kind of blockage. They say they're keen to make that change, but we haven't seen it yet. So, yeah, I think there's also some politics. I think there is there are interests that are trying to push a nuclear agenda as a, as a solution. 
and that's muddying the waters. It's creating like, false expectations that that is, a, that is a viable option and delaying decisions on, on renewables. Um, and then I think uh, there's uncertainty around ESCOM's role. The integrated resource plan does not make provision for ESCOM to be a player in renewables. Uh, while at the same time, ESCOM has to close down its coal-fired power stations. And ESCOM is rightly saying, hey, mm. why must we be left out of the party? You know, we've got capacity, we can do this. Uh, and there's a big debate about that. And uh, I, I guess some of that debate is a bit chicken and egg. Uh, the many private producers would probably say they wouldn't uh, mind competing against ESCOM if we already had the ITSMO, and that process is running concurrently. Okay. It's complex, and that's why you're a professor uh, of complex systems <laughs> in transition. Uh, but it does, uh, just as a last comment, Mark, um, mm. I'm certainly left with some hope that things are moving and it might not be linear uh, and that we're seeing changes that might become exponential in future. Are you as confident yeah, as I am? I, I agree. I mean, you, you've never had a CEO who says the future of ESCOM is renewables, the CEO of ESCOM. ESCOM has adopted a net zero uh, by 2050 goal. They set up a just energy, trans just energy transition office. They've issued an expression of interest call repurposing uh, the, the coal fire power station and so on and so forth. There's a whole... Oh, typical, as you get to the big ending, uh, someone goes and uh, fiddles with the lines. Oh, is it load shedding? Wouldn't it be ironic? Mark Swilling, Distinguished Professor of Sustainable Development in the School of Public Leadership at the University of Stellenbosch, where he is a co-director of the Stellenbosch Center for Complex Systems in Transition. He's also Deputy Chair uh, in uh, the Development Bank of Southern Africa, looking at infrastructure with the plan that solves the country's energy and indeed uh, economic crisis in this week's sustainability slot brought to you by Environmall. Environmall sustainably sourced packaging is a great step towards eradicating single-use plastics. Head on over to environmall.co.za to view their range and a chance to win a presidential stay at Avianto. That's valued at 7,000 Rand. Environmall for sustainable tomorrows. This is Classic Business with Michael Avery on Classic 1027 in Johannesburg and Fine Music Radio in Cape Town. Environmall has devoted the last 10 years to providing innovative, sustainable food packaging solutions to restaurants, shop owners and large corporates passionate about protecting the planet. Environmall source versatile and functional products as a sustainable alternative to single-use plastics. Head on over to environmall.co.za to view their range of sustainably sourced, eco-friendly packaging solutions and you can stand a chance to win a presidential stay at Avianto valued at 7,000 Rand including a romantic, eco-friendly gourmet picnic. Environmental for sustainable tomorrows.